from the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Welcome to online version number 23 of Grapevine. Officially numbered volume 40, number 35, and recorded on the 28th of August 2020. In this week's news, a spot of indoor gardening leads to a police raid in Great Yarmouth. The Day of the Triffids has nothing on the moving Galston succulent. And a young hero saves a drowning horse. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader, Andrew. Only two batches of news this week, the first part of which starts us off. Hello everybody, it's Andrew here. I hope you're all well and welcome to Grapevine on this August bank holiday weekend. Edging towards the end of what has been, shall we say, a summer like no other. Anyway, we have our usual mix of news, views and features from around the area, so let's get underway. Neighbours have shared their shock and sadness after 600 cannabis plants were found at a once grand seaside home. Police discovered some 600 cannabis plants at Lancaster House in Lancaster Road, Great Yarmouth, following a string of raids across Galston. People living nearby said the tucked away detached house with a grand entrance flanked by columns had once been the residence for a succession of families connected with tourism. When the last of the line died, it was sold on and rented out, falling into disrepair, they said. The discovery on Wednesday, August the 12th, was greeted with dismay by residents who remembered it in its heyday. David Bloomfield, who has lived in the street all his life, said it was a real shame that such a lovely house had fallen on hard times. In the last few years, the garage had been knocked down and replaced with a new-built house, further shielding it from view. Another man said there had been a number of other drug factories discovered in the area over the last few years, adding, they will grow anything anywhere. However, he was shocked at the scale of the operation, having seen the amounts officers had brought out in bags. The upstairs windows looked to have been boarded from the inside. Others said there was a strong smell coming from the house, with so many mature plants ready to be cut, although people had mostly got used to it and stopped registering the aroma. Officers said they arrested three people and discovered the cannabis factory after swooping on multiple homes in Galston. The investigation, launched following the discovery of a cannabis farm in Hopton in April, led to a series of warrants being executed. Officers raided homes in Borough Road, Beckles Road and Pavilion Road, seizing property under the Proceeds of Crime Act. Two men, aged 41 and 46, and a 43-year-old woman were all arrested on suspicion of being concerned in the supply of cannabis and money laundering. All three suspects were taken to Great Yarmouth Police Investigation Centre for questioning and released under investigation while inquiries continue. Work has begun on a £25 million project to build 137 homes in a Norfolk town amid a row over how many will be affordable. A breaking ground ceremony took place in Norwich Road, Acle, where St Edmunds Park will provide homes in a new partnership between developers Lovell and Norfolk County Council. It's the first of several schemes across the county to build more than 350 homes over the next five years on council-owned land but there is opposition over how many are to be for those on lower incomes. Repton Property Developments is a firm set up by the council and it emerged 69 homes will be for sale on the open market, with 45 affordable. However, the firm has stated it is anticipated an extra 23 affordable homes will be built on top of the legal agreement in place. A spokesman on behalf of the development partners said, The plans at St Edmunds Park will be delivered in accordance with Section 106 Agreement and with the intention of policy compliance. In fact, it is anticipated that some of the additional affordable homes will be provided on top of this requirement in order to truly deliver against local need. There will be a total of 137 homes at the development, 27 for affordable rent, 18 for affordable shared ownership, and 69 homes will be available to purchase on the open market. It is intended that an additional 15 homes for affordable rent and 8 for shared ownership 
bringing the total to 42 for affordable rent and 26 for shared ownership. I hope you followed that. But Steve Muir for you, Labour Group leader and a councillor for Catton Grove said, all of the houses should be affordable homes in terms of what the ordinary person can afford. The county council shouldn't be spending money that isn't for the benefit of all people in need. Much as I welcome council land being used for new homes, they should all be for local people on lower incomes. Repton is financed by the council, lending the company it owns money to buy the land the council owns. It also lends the company the money to pay interest. The upshot is the build cost is high and that makes what you and I understand as affordable, not what happens in reality. Lovell is the chosen developer to work with Repton on other sites, as well including land on the east of Lowestoft Road, Hopton, and two sites at Atterborough. Yeah, that's a little bit contentious there, isn't it? I think as long as the houses do get built for the people that need them, that is the priority. Now, anybody experiencing minor illness and injuries will be able to access advice and care across Norfolk this bank holiday weekend. A number of NHS services will be open, including NHS 111, the Minor Injuries Unit in Cromer and the Norwich Walk-In Centre, which will continue to support patients. The Ruan House Walk-In Centre on Ruan Road is open between 7am and 9pm every day, with staff able to help with a range of minor illnesses and injuries, including minor cuts and wounds, strains and sprains and skin complaints. Patients will be triaged at the front door and signposted elsewhere or treated accordingly. In North Norfolk, the Minor Injuries Unit in Mill Road, Cromer, continues its seven-day operations between 8am to 7.45pm. Patients can receive treatment for minor injuries, such as minor wounds, burns or simple fractures, and staff are able to advise over the phone if an injury is suitable for the unit. A number of pharmacies will also be open to offer advice and emergency contraception. Those requiring a repeat prescription will need to request it in advance of the bank holiday, then arrange collection via a friend or family member or by themselves. Dr Anub Deshi, GP and Chair of Norfolk Health Services Norfolk and Waveney Clinical Commissioning Group, and we'll shorten that to the CCG I think, said we urge you to access health services if you need them. However, please be sensible and if you or a family member experience coronavirus symptoms, please access NHS services online or via the phone. We must also not forget about regular medication and ask that you request and collect any repeat prescriptions ahead of the weekend. The CCG also urged anyone experiencing an urgent but not an emergency request for help to call 111 online or by phone. A group spokesman added, If you have any coronavirus symptoms, please do not visit any health facility. Instead, remain home and visit NHS 111 online or dial 111. Well, let's hope nobody has to access those services over the weekend or at any time indeed. Now, this uh, item has been widely covered by the local media. It's the Bannon Poultry Factory coronavirus outbreak. And fears that a coronavirus outbreak at the factory will plunge the county back into lockdown have been allayed as the number of confirmed cases among staff at the site passed 70. On Wednesday evening, it emerged that the factory at the centre of the outbreak, Bannon Poultry, has voluntarily agreed to shut part of the factory and place 350 members of staff into isolation. It comes as it was announced that testing at the factory near Attleborough had returned 75 positive tests out of 347, with the final figure yet to be confirmed. But Dr Louise Smith, Director of Public Health England in Norfolk, has ruled out any immediate local lockdown, as was seen in Leicester early this year. She said, At this point, what we are doing is a very specific localised lockdown to a very specific setting, those who work there and their households. We do not anticipate the need for a geographical or town-based lockdown at this stage, and we would only move to that kind of measure if we were getting evidence of spread in the general public that could not be linked to a specific location, such as this outbreak. We are not at the level at this stage and the background level of infection in Norfolk outside of this outbreak is very low. Dr Smith said 
The vast majority of cases in the factory had occurred among staff working in the cutting room, where the slaughtered chickens are chopped into specific cuts, and that the number of cases elsewhere in the factory was low. It is this part of the factory that Baden Poultry has agreed to temporarily close and the section will be deep cleaned. However, she added that the central government could decide to overrule the recommendation for a partial closure and instead advise to close it entirely. She also said that the risk of the virus spreading from the packaging was very low and that we do not have evidence that this happens. Dr Smith said the majority of the workers who had tested positive lived in three districts, Breckland, Great Yarmouth and Norwich, and that a number of the workers lived in the same household. She added that the origin of the first case, which was confirmed on Friday, was not clear and that one of the 75 people to test positive had been admitted to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Andrew Proctor, leader of the County Council, said that Bannon Poultry had been extraordinarily cooperative during this outbreak. And Mid-Norfolk MP George Freeman said surrounding communities must still remain vigilant. But he said the news is no cause for panic. Norfolk's public health teams and councils have dealt with the virus better than many areas. But it is a reminder that with cooler autumn weather looming, we will all need to be vigilant especially in workplaces with high densities of staff and customers at risk of chest infections and about reducing the risk of a second surge of COVID-19. Philip Leslie, the Mayor of Attleborough, said he had expected to see an increase in confirmed cases but also moved to reassure people living in the town. They have tested all 300 staff, which I think has been exceptional. We are very grateful for Public Health England, their quick response and the way they have escalated resources to tackle it, he said. However, it will raise eyebrows within the community to see such a large number of confirmed cases. We need to remain vigilant and keep following the government guidance. But we also need to have good practice within our homes as well. People are becoming a little lax and do not follow rules in their own homes. Carl Cohen is manager of Breckland Tire Services, a business located near the factory just off Station Road. He said... It is not nice to have it on your doorstep, it is slightly worrying. But from a business point of view, we feel safe because our procedures are very tight. Now this is a constantly changing scenario, as many of you may have noted on the local news last night. But it does appear that the company and the health authorities are working closely together in attempt to contain and minimise the outbreak, so let's hope that works. Coming back locally now, um, a cafe has had to close for two weeks after its manager came into contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the Mocker Cafe on Regent Street in Yarmouth announced on Tuesday it would be closed until September the 7th, while the manager, Diane Sirret, self-isolates at home. The cafe is run by mother and daughter, Ms Sirret and Sam Osborne, who have both since tested negative for the virus. But according to government guidelines, despite testing negative, Miss Surrett still has to isolate for 14 days from contact and as such the cafe will remain closed. Sam Osborne said that while she was relieved the tests were negative, the closure was a big hit for the business and a bit of a kick in the teeth. Last week this paper reported that the cafe had been rammed since signing up to the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Miss Osborne went on to say, The biggest worry is you don't know how many times this is going to happen but you have to do what you can to keep everybody safe. The nicest thing is the support we've received from customers, complimenting the way we've handled it. We just want to be upfront and honest, and we acted as quickly as we could. Miss Osborne will return to the cafe on Friday, August the 28th, and continue making cakes to order, as she was not in close contact with the person who did test positive. And now a little bit of good news for those with a sweet tooth. An enterprising couple who began a drive-through donut business at the height of the lockdown say their surprising success belongs to the power of social media. Marinie Reynolds and her husband Adam Bond stationed a drive-through donuts van outside their home in Caister when all other restaurants remained closed. Miss Reynolds said, In May, all of our bookings were being cancelled up to Christmas. We thought, if we don't do something now, how will we ever recover? I don't want to say it was desperation that drove us to this, but I think it may be a bit of restlessness. We couldn't sit around and wait any longer. The couple, who were already running a donut stall at Bury St Edmunds Market, had the van up and running in June, 
after buying it for a bargain the month before. Mr Bond, a handyman, deftly fitted it out with all the necessary equipment himself, meaning the venture set them back way less than expected, they said. But Miss Reynolds said the van is tucked away in the old Reynolds coach's yard in Caister, which was run by the family before its permanent closure after our Uncle Charles's death. She said the yard really isn't in a prominent location. It's not like you get a lot of cars driving past who would just happen to notice our stall. What actually got people showing up, and sometimes the numbers could reach a hundred or more on a Sunday, was the power of social media. It turns out our donuts are extremely photogenic. Miss Reynolds set up a Facebook page, which her friends shared on their platforms. Then she made a website and began posting more regularly. She said the follower numbers just ballooned. Now we've got more than 2,000. People were posting pictures of our donuts on their Instagram and Facebook profiles and the queues just kept getting longer every day we were open. We thought the van would help tide us over until normal business picked up at the market. Now we're going to keep at it. In the near future, the couple have their eyes on Yarmouth Market as the next site of potential expansion. Well, that just goes to show, doesn't it? Donut give up. The crew of a Norfolk wind farm boat have told of their globe-trotting exploits and mingling with stars on the set of the new Tenet summer blockbuster during three months of filming. Richard Thurlow twice turned down the chance to work on the Warner Brothers film, but after finally being strong-armed into the deal, faced a three-day dash, some 1,200 miles, from Lowestoft to Tallinn in Estonia to meet the movie schedule. Having arrived at the location, the movie moguls were immediately captivated by the Iceni Revenge, which is part of a 12-strong fleet working out of Lowestoft as a wind farm service vessel and it recently underwent a plush £1 million renovation. They cast it as the hero boat at the hub of the action, instead of the camera boat role it had originally been hired for. It meant the craft, part of Iceni Marine Services, became a base for director Christopher Nolan as they zipped along at speed, a helicopter whirring overhead, capturing the action with skipper Aaron Thurlow at the helm. With all the logistics handled by James Lucas, it was left to former Case the Lifeboat coxswain Dick Thurlow and his son Aaron to man the vessel, welcoming the film's star John David Washington aboard on a daily basis. Meanwhile Richard Thurlow, who stayed in the UK, was called upon to organise another seafaring section at a secret location which doubled for the Amalfi Coast, where he worked with Sir Kenneth Branagh, even lending the fated actor his coat. But instead of being starstruck, Richard said all the Turner Iceni staff were, quote, very Norfolk about the whole episode, getting on with their work and treating the cast as they would anyone else. I mean, the Queen just lives up the road, he added. <laughs> Filming in Estonia involved Mr Washington stepping on the boat in a sequence that took some six hours to film, but will likely amount to only seconds on the screen. They stayed in Tallinn, which had been completely commandeered by the filmmaking machine, for around 10 days, before heading to the German port of Sassnitz while they were waiting to be called up again. A second, more intensive stint involved scenes around a wind farm in Denmark, where the Iceni was both a cast member and a workboat, carrying out hundreds of transfers to and from the industrial site. Here they faced long days in often difficult conditions, also undertaking some night work involving manoeuvring alongside large vessels after dark that were tricky and beyond the capabilities of some of the vessels. For the filming, the revenge element of the boat's name was covered and the crew were taken to wardrobe where they were kitted out with standard boiler suits. They mostly worked with the marine team, led by Neil Andreas, known for his work in the iconic Pirates of the Caribbean series. A lot of the filming was shrouded in secrecy and most of the time the crew had no idea what was going on or even an inkling of the plot. However, seeing firsthand what went into a big budget film was fascinating, they said, with no expense spared on food and accommodation for everyone involved. Mr Washington was on the boat every day for around ten days and Nolan for about five. The lead actor was, by all accounts, a top bloke, shaking everyone's hand every day, they said. Nolan was a man of few words, but a deep thinker who was completely immersed in his craft, Dick said, adding that he shook Aaron's hand and thanked him for all his efforts on the last day of filming. Although some days were long and quite boring, B 
being involved in such a big box office blockbuster, which is the first post-Covid release tasked with saving the cinema industry, had been a real thrill for them all. I just think it's marvellous that the little Norfolk company is involved in something like this. It was a job, an experience and a holiday, he added. Iceni Marine Services was set up by Richard Thurlow and a friend in 2009 and later sold to the Glasgow-based Turner Group and with Richard now a director. And Richard and Aaron still also volunteer as a crew for Caster Independent Lifeboat. Thanks, Andrew. Well, since Andrew finished his home recording of the news, the Great Yarmouth Mercury website has published a couple of news stories which we think will interest you. More details have emerged regarding the COVID-19 pandemic locally. A spokesperson from meat producer Bernard Matthews has said today, Friday the 28th, that one worker at their Great Witchingham factory had tested positive for coronavirus but that there was no evidence of a wider outbreak. They said the individual has not been at work for a week and continues to self-isolate. All contacts have since been traced and have been tested. All results are negative. Whilst at Bannham Poultry, around 350 workers are now self-isolating, with the number of confirmed cases rising to 80 as of August the 27th. Meanwhile, according to Carl Smith, leader of Great Yarmouth Borough Council, there is no evidence of increased risk to the general public. In a statement, he said, the workers at the factory mainly live within the Breckland, Norwich and Great Yarmouth districts, and those within the cutting plant have been asked to self-isolate along with their whole households. Please be assured that the advice from Norfolk Public Health is that the confirmed cases of infection are solely in staff who work at Bannon Poultry and in their households. In Great Yarmouth and the immediate area, there is no evidence of increased risk to the general public and we are proactively trying to contact and support those locally who are self-isolating. He added... This is a developing situation, with more information becoming available all the time. And on to something a bit more cheerful. A broad store owner coaxes a wayward seal back to sea. The owner of a village store says he will miss Sally the seal and her antics after successfully escorting his newfound companion back to sea. On Thursday, August the 20th, a wayward common seal, since nicknamed Sally, turned up at Womack Stave near Ludham on the Norfolk Broads. She made herself comfortable on the inflatable kayaks at the moorings behind the big shop, with owner David Benbow saying her curious and gentle presence drew the crowds. But on Monday, August the 24th, Mr Benbow took advantage of the high evening tides to coax Sally out of the marina and on her way. He said, There was a big spring tide and high tide, which luckily coincided with us closing the shop for the day. We decided, once the tide was ebbing, that it was the right moment. She needed to be moved on before somebody got hurt. Seals won't attack, but will bite if somebody tries to touch them and we'd had several kids in small dinghies interacting with her and getting into the water to swim with her. Explaining how the night unfolded, he said, Once we closed the shop, me and Terry, one of my staff, tied the inflatable to our day boat and set out to guide her up towards Akel. We thought this would be an impossible task, but with a bucket of fish for encouragement, we managed it. She was very happy swimming alongside our boat up to the River Thurn and then up to the Thurn Mouth where it meets the River Bure. Once on the Bure, she climbed back onto the inflatable to hitch a ride for a short distance and then continued to swim alongside. As we reached Akel Bridge, we hung back to see if she would continue on her own. But after a couple of minutes, 
she popped her head back up alongside the boat. So we decided to go further along towards Stokesby, and at this point total darkness was on top of us. After hanging back from her once again, this time she continued ahead without us, and we lost sight of her completely. With our navigation lights on, we then headed back to Womack. We feel sad because we really miss Sally the Seal and her antics, but at the same time, we were happy we'd achieved a successful rescue ourselves. The rest of the news shortly, but firstly some weird goings on in 1973. Question, can we really slip into another time zone as easily as we'd walk from one room to the next? Ah, this is the curious case of the Great Yarmouth shop with a ghostly assistant. It was when he approached the till that he noticed the shop was strangely old-fashioned, despite it being 1973. The lady behind the desk was in Edwardian dress. The wonderfully named Mr Squirrel had, according to an account in Norfolk author Joan Foreman's book, The Mask of Time, popped into a Great Yarmouth shop after a recommendation from a friend. Coin collector Mr Squirrel, who had stepped into the smartly painted shop from a traditionally cobbled road, noted almost straight away that inside it seemed quaintly old-fashioned. Inside there was complete silence. The traffic outside had melted away entirely. Keen to buy transparent envelopes to keep individual coins in, he went to ask for help at the till. A young woman stepped forward to help. She was wearing a blouse with a cameo brooch at her neck. Her hair was scraped back into a bun and her skirt was long and swished the floor. Mr Squirrel asked for the coin envelopes and she produced them, noting that they were also used by fishermen to keep their hooks in. He bought 36 for a shilling, nodded his thanks and left the shop. Within a week and having catalogued 36 coins, he found himself in need of more envelopes and set out once again for the old-fashioned shop. However, when he arrived, he was perplexed to see paving slabs instead of cobbles, a drab frontage instead of smart paint, and inside a much older woman stepped forward to serve him. When he asked for the envelope, she said she didn't stock them. Mr Squirrel mentioned the lady he had seen a week earlier, only to be told that there was no such assistant working at the shop. In fact, the lady he was speaking to was the sole assistant and had been for many years. The story became even stranger when Mr Squirrel took one of the envelopes he had bought on his first visit to an expert. He dated them and said that they were around 10 to 15 years old, although he did say that Cellulose had been around since the 1920s. And then there was the question of payment. By 1973, decimalisation had been introduced, although the old shilling coins were still legal tender with a value of 5p, until December the 31st, 1990. Mr Squirrel thought back and estimated that the shop seemed to be similar to those that were commonplace in the early 1900s. Yet the envelopes were younger and the coin used for payment younger still. Even rarer still in the recorded cases of time slips, Mr Squirrel had actually brought something back seemingly from another period of time entirely. In her book, Ms Foreman suggested that Mr Squirrel had experienced a time slip, maybe as his grandfather had also been a coin collector and possibly might have visited the same shop. Were grandfather and grandson's memories merged? Or had Mr Squirrel simply visited two different shops and made a mistake? He was adamant that this was not the case. In Masks of Time, Ms Foreman recounted her own time slip experience at Haddon Hall in Derbyshire 
where she saw a group of children playing at the top of the stairs, who she later discovered were youngsters from the 1640s, not present day. Ah, perhaps one day we will have the answer to these strange happenings. Just give it some time. Right, Andrew is back with the last batch of this week's news roundup. The owners of the Yankee Traveller restaurant have had a bid to serve alcohol from their Airstream burger van refused. Charles Thurston, on behalf of Hurston Hospitality Limited, applied to Great Yarmouth Borough Council for a licence to serve alcohol from his Yankee Airstream caravan, which would then be consumed in the front beer garden of the first and last pub in Ormsby. He also applied for a licence to play recorded music between 11am and 11pm daily and said that the site for this kind of activity was exactly what the now derelict pub was originally built for. The application was discussed at a council meeting held virtually on Tuesday, August the 25th, but after much debate between Mr Thurston, councillors and an objecting resident, the committee members decided granting the licence would not be in the interests of, quote, public safety. The chairman of the meeting, Paul Wells, said, The application for the playing of recorded music is successful, but the application for the sale of alcohol and supply of alcohol is refused. The committee notes the premises are located next to a main access route for vehicles, including buses. And residents have complained regarding obstruction in the area to driveways and the through road, with the latter being an essential point to take on board for the councillors. Alcohol will encourage further trade and will make a difficult situation even more dangerous. Signage telling people to park in the designated car park will not adequately deal with this risk to public safety. Earlier in the meeting, resident Hubert Harbord had raised staunch opposition to the plans, arguing that obstructive parking by customers could, quote, block access for emergency services and that the smell from the caravan was obnoxious. He said, if I was to create a smell like that, I'd be liable to prosecution. But is Mr Thurston? I don't think so. It's one rule for the tourist industry and one rule for locals. But according to Mr Thurston, the Yankee Airstream is a family restaurant selling family food to families. He said, all we want to do is add a glass of beer or wine to the food we already serve. We had a temporary event notice for a time and were serving alcohol. The people who came along only had one drink with their food. They weren't large groups of football hooligans. He went on to say, the first and last had been a pub serving food and drink for over a hundred years. The activities we are proposing are no different to those the building was purposely built for. We are asking for an alcohol licence at a pub. That's all. Well, if that's sharpened your appetite, here's another culinary item. For many restaurants, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme has been a blessing. But some of those in already busy tourist areas have struggled to cope with an overwhelming demand. Katie Newport at the Smokehouse in Ormsby, which is actually located next to the first and last we spoke of in the previous item, has spoken about her experience. We hadn't been open long since COVID-19 when it started. We had a huge 48-page document we had to go through and personalise to our business. There were no definites in it, but we had everything in place as much as we possibly could. We had to have more staff, which was great, but you can only have them in certain clusters, which makes the routine very, very difficult. Eat Out to Help Out has been good for busy towns or cities, but the government is locking down countries and telling people they need to quarantine when they get back from holidays, and that has encouraged people to do staycations and go to seaside areas. As a result, seaside resorts everywhere have been inundated. We've had to pay someone to stand on the door to allow people in at certain times. We've had to employ someone for 70 hours a week to answer the phone and tell people we are fully booked. The phone does not stop ringing. We've been very fortunate in that we are a popular restaurant anyway and we've been busy on the Thursday, Fridays and Saturdays when the offer does not apply. We have seating outside for 100 people. You try and allocate walk-ins to the outside seating but that turned us into a much bigger seated restaurant than our kitchen could handle. People have been abusive about the fact they can't get in. 
We've had people sneak in and sit at a table. The host who has sat them at the table and the waiters who take their orders don't know they weren't booked. Then the pre-booked tables come in and we have a serious problem and try and flip tables. It's inundated us. As a result of these things, we put extra measures in place. We hired even more staff, which meant more hours for the existing staff to train the new ones. We also bought a massive smoker which would double our capacity to smoke meat. Our ribs are smoked for eight hours and they're beautiful and we didn't want to compromise on the quality. So we invested in a smoker nearly three times the size of the existing one which was imported from America. We introduced changes and the waiting time went down. People were sat and told it would be a minimum of 40 minutes wait because everything is fresh to order. Then I think it started to run more smoothly but I promised I would never put the staff in the position they felt on that first week, emotionally and physically exhausted. We even had a customer throw a drink over a member of staff. We've had a customer swearing at staff. Customers refusing to pay, coming in on a Sunday and saying it's disgusting we aren't offering the deal. We've tried our very best to accommodate our locals as much as we can. We don't want to alienate the people who carry us through the winter. In all of this, we refuse to drop our standards. I think the government could have given restaurants the choice of using the scheme in a month in the lead up to Christmas, as for coastal areas, October is a notoriously quiet month. It was initially overwhelming and it was too much. We were doing 20 hour shifts, making sure we stayed until about 6 or 7am so our staff could get sleep. We were working on a lower amount of staff with a 200% increase in the volume of customers coming through the door. Don't get me wrong, it's very positive but it's the wrong time of year for coastal areas. She finalised by saying, there's no point throwing the towel in now with something like that when we're providing such a good thing for customers. It's about sitting down as a team and implementing changes. In September, I think we will stop using the government's offer and maybe consider doing our own promotion offer in the winter. This uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme actually is due to end currently on August the 31st, as, uh, as I'm speaking to you now though there is talk of it being extended. But I think the idea of it uh, for coastal holiday resorts to be able to use it later in the season is, is a very good one. And now for the weather. Dozens of homes were left without power as trees were brought crashing down as Storm Francis lashed parts of Norfolk and Suffolk on Tuesday and overnight into Wednesday morning. Dan Holly from University of East Anglia-based forecasters WeatherQuest said the highest gusts in Norfolk were recorded at Weybourne with winds of 58 miles an hour. Marham saw winds of 55 miles an hour and winds of 52 miles an hour were recorded in Norwich. There were power cuts in the area around Briston, Edgefield and Melton Constable with more than 35 properties affected. Homes were also left without power on Wednesday morning in Heatherset, Hingham and Western Longville. Firefighters from Stalham and Martham were called to Howe Hill at Ludham at just after 2.20am to reports that electricity cables were arcing but crews made the scene safe. They were then called to help with a number of trees which were downed amid the blustery weather. The urban search and rescue team from Deerham was called to a tree which had fallen on the A47 near Caister on Sea just before 11.30pm on Wednesday night. The crews used chainsaws to remove the tree and had made the scene safe by 1.15. Not longer after, the chainsaws were needed again to clear a fallen tree on the A1075 at Stowe Eden, and that was cleared by 2.45. A driver had a scare because a tree branch crashed down on the road in front of him on the Stoke Road between Stoke Holy Cross and Norwich. Ryan Williams from Essex, who was staying in Norwich, was driving at about 10.30pm when he had to screech to a halt because of the fallen branch. He said it gave me quite a scare. It was just after a dip in the road, so I didn't see it until the last minute, and there's no street lights around there. I put my brakes on and managed to stop in time. I called the police and they came out to the scene, but I had to turn back and head another way. And in Suffolk, the A47 was shut near Lowestoft because of a fallen tree. Highways England said that the northbound carriageway was shut near Gunton due to a tree that had fallen in the carriageway, and contractors were there to clear the route. Firefighters were also called to deal with unsafe structures at Lovell Gardens in Watton and Catfield. The Met Office had issued a yellow warning for wind for much of England and Wales until 9am on Wednesday. Met Office forecaster Craig Snell said, Francis has now pretty much moved offshore and it's just a slow, gradual improvement. 
Ah, the great British summer. Now, not a tropical storm, but a tropical plant, and one that has become a landmark, loved by passers-by and bus passengers. And it's just been moved to a new home after growing too big and too spiky for a front garden. The agave americana, native to Mexico and the southern USA, was planted 10 years ago outside a house on High Road in Goulston, on the main bus route from Great Yarmouth. But last week, Karen Jane Halliday, who had inherited the plant after moving to the house seven years ago, said it would be moving to a new home. Sorry to say, but our big spiky plant has got too big for the garden and we're worried that it might eat the postman, she announced on social media. So on Saturday, August the 22nd, Lowestoft man Ashley Ray Clark, an exotic plant enthusiast, dug up the agave before taking it away. Miss Halliday said people used to knock on our front door and ask to take pictures of the plant, but it had grown intensely over the last four or five years and was now approximately eight feet tall with long spikes and quite vicious. My husband tried to keep it under control by cutting bits off and he's bled several times from getting caught on it. It's sad because it's a lovely thing to look at, she said. Mr Clark, who has loved gardening since he was a boy, said, I've been aware of this agave for a few years. I would pass it every morning. And one day I noticed them cutting it back. I thought it'd be a shame if it was chopped down, so I knocked on the door asking if it could go to a new home. They were happy to go ahead with it, but they probably thought it was a bit random, he said. More than 100 people have commented on social media, media about the plant's migration from High Road. One woman said, It gives me a smile each time I go past. It's quite the iconic landmark around here. I'm sad to see it go. It's one of the only joyful things about the bus ride to Yarmouth, says another. Oh dear. Another passenger said, I love seeing this going past on the bus. It will be sadly missed. And a final comment, wish to plant a long and fruitful life in Lowestoft. Well, that's a nice story with a happy ending, we hope. Now, a covert artist who has been dubbed Yarmouth's Banksy has revealed his intention to cover the entire Marina Centre hoardings in artwork after two more paintings were unveiled. Between August 19th and the 21st, further stencils of an unnamed woman appeared on the blue hoardings near Dixie's on the Beach Cafe in Great Yarmouth. And now the artist himself has spoken to the Yarmouth Mercury, admitting he won't be stopping any time soon. Though refusing to disclose his true name, he performs under the nom de guerre of Colossal Youth, or CY. A 58-year-old from Great Yarmouth, CY, says he is not an imitation Banksy, but recognises that the street artist had undoubtable influence on him. He said, The response from the first images has been positive, so I've decided to keep going and aim to cover the entire wall. I'm not going to tell anyone who I'm drawing up there. That will be for the viewer to work out for themselves. That's the difference between myself and Banksy. His art is accessible and instantly recognisable, and the, the emotions he triggers are often obvious. My work isn't like that. I don't want to give too much away. It's designed to be enigmatic. I'm sure some people already know who she is, but she will mean something different to every one of us. On the topic of the paintings as graffiti, CY said these were not acts of vandalism. He said vandalism is an act of willful destruction, about tagging your name on some hard-to-reach concrete wall. It's supposed to be permanent and subversive. But my work is deliberately temporary, and I'd like to think tasteful. These hoardings won't be here for long, and the rain and sun will cause the images to fade. That's what I want. They're meant to indicate the transience of human life, a fact which has become so much clearer to all of us during this pandemic. Besides, the first ever piece of recorded artwork was a piece of graffiti in a cave. That's just how we as human beings leave our mark. CY, who leaves his own mark under the cover of darkness between midnight and 5am, has been applauded by nearby businesses. One nearby cafe said they were in awe of the paintings and that they brought vibrancy to a seafront currently blighted by construction work. That's great, and I think it's great he's 58 too and not a teenager, and I bet he tidied up afterwards. Now, two stories of human courage and resource for you. A 13-year-old boy who risked his life to save a drowning horse has been hailed a hero for doing what even an adult wouldn't have had the guts to do. Cameron Martin from Alton Broad 
was being looked after by family friends at the Midspirit Discount Equestrian Farm in Borough Castle on August the 13th when he disappeared for more than an hour. When he was eventually found, he was desperately fighting to prevent a horse from drowning in a nearby dike. The teenager had taken a walk to visit a pony kept on the farm and was alarmed to discover the nag seemingly trying to force its head under the water. Leaping into action, he clambered into the dike and used all his might to hold the horse's head aloft, while simultaneously trying to raise the alarm. Cameron, who last year had his jaw broken by a masked attacker, said he sometimes runs off and gets into trouble. He said, I have run away before, but on this occasion I was desperate for someone to come and find me. I was walking up to my field to see my pony when I noticed one of the owner's horses wasn't where it normally is. I panicked, and then my first thought was to check the dike. I saw it in the water, trying to force itself under, and I just did what I had to do. I was so exhausted afterwards that I slept for 24 hours, woke up for five, then went back to sleep for 22 more. His mum, Kellyanne Gook, is a nurse at the James Paget Hospital, so her friends Jonathan and Tanya Docker-Smith look after Cameron at their farm while she works. Tanya said, I'm like an auntie to Cameron. He's got additional educational needs, so it can be difficult to handle. He often goes off on his own for half an hour or so, and we're used to that, but on this day he was gone for well over an hour, and we started to panic. We had to get his mum out of bed after a night shift to help look for him, the poor soul. Mrs Docker Smith said that a manhunt for Cameron led them to the dike at the edge of the farm, ten acres from the main site, where he was in the water and trying with all his might to hold the horse's head above the surface. She said we'd seen Cameron gesticulating on the side of the dike from afar, but honestly had no idea what he was doing. He kept jumping back into the water and out again. It was all very scary. It turned out he was literally keeping Domino's head out of the water to stop him from drowning. But Cameron knows how to handle horses so well, he'd had the sense to get onto the side of the dike every so often to jump around and wave his hands in an effort to get our attention. He knew leaving it for a second would have led to its death. The scene was horrible. The horse had weeds trapped under its nose and it was clearly in pain. She added, Cameron was freezing and distraught, but he was adamant that we saved the horse's life first. Mr. Smith said that Cameron was pulled from the water by his mother while she herself jumped in to save the horse, adding that the episode must have looked comical to passers-by. Oh, I don't think it looked comical. She attached a rope from her husband's crane around the horse's neck, which was then used to gently pull the horse out. She said, Domino has a long-term leg injury and is due to be put down in January next year. We think he was trying to force his head under the water because he couldn't go on anymore. Miss Docker Smith said that the horse's owner, Paul Williams, was immensely grateful to Cameron and called him a little hero. Not even an adult would have had the guts to do what he did, she said. He and the horse have bonded after this. When he stands at the one side of the dike and Cameron at the other, Domino gives him a little whinny. Well, what a brave young man to uh, try and help a horse that uh, isn't destined for a long future. And uh, we hope both of them recover well. Now, a local legend with stage 3 pancreatic cancer needs £50,000 to get to Miami for potentially life-saving treatment. Howard Shepherdson, a 58-year-old known as Shep, owns Save and Drive on Galston High Street but had to step back from the running of the business when he was delivered his devastating diagnosis in December 2019. His family has set up a fundraiser which received donations of £10,000 in a week. Mr Shepherdson's story, according to his niece Paige Horsley, is tragic. She said, He was feeling a bit ill in November last year and we were all convinced he was just diabetic or something. But just 24 hours after going to the doctor's, he started to turn yellow and was admitted to hospital. It was tragic to see because he was so fit and healthy just days before. He then took part in a clinical trial for which he had to travel between the JPH and the Norfolk and Norwich for weeks on end for radiotherapy and chemotherapy and it put a lot of strain on him. He's now been told there's nothing left they can do for him here. The only surgeon who can operate on him lives in Miami where they use pioneering open nano knife surgery for patients with difficult to reach tumours. For his daughter Sarah this is their last hope. 
She said, my dad really is my hero and has always helped out so many local people. He truly deserves the chance to be operated on. It just goes to show that cancer really can affect anybody at any time and it's truly devastating. Miss Horsley, whose mum is Mr Shepherdson's twin sister, said her uncle was a typical middle-aged man who was too proud to ask for help himself. But she said he finally came round to the idea of a fundraiser after realising there was no plan B. She said he has always taken care of his family and staff and took out a loan over the course of the pandemic to make sure he could keep paying his staff's wages. Because he's a businessman, people might think this fundraiser isn't necessary, but he's spent everything he's got on his workers and his treatment. She added, his daughter has three little kids and his son's girlfriend is expecting a baby in January. We'd love for him to be able to see his family grow up. Now the donation address for this site is www.gofundme.com forward slash f forward slash help Howard Shep all one word and I think it's a very worthy cause thank you all for listening I hope you've enjoyed all of our items this week and until next time keep well keep smiling and keep listening to Grapevine goodbye for now Well, that's it for yet another edition of Grapevine, and so here are the usual back announcements. Grapevine Volume 40, Number 35 is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content, in the main, is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association except responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Margaret and Dusty's cutting crew will be with us next week when we hope that you will give us the pleasure of your company for another local news roundup. So, from Andrew and myself, both hoping that you have a great week and keep well and safe, it's bye for now. (laughs) 